Hi there, and welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Sick Scribe. Yesterday, I was praying, and I went into a vision. And in the vision, I saw God, and he said, Krista, I'd like to teach you about oneness. And I said, okay, Lord, I'd love to learn about oneness. What does it mean that you are one and that we're in one, like in John 17? And the Lord said, I'm going to show you what I showed St. Patrick. And he picked up a three-leaf clover, and he said, Krista, this is what the three-leaf clover means. Everything in creation points to my hidden character and attributes. And the three-leaf clover represents Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all connected on one vine. But this is why the four-leaf clover is considered fortunate. And it's because there's the Trinity plus you. So now it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and me. What you just heard was a recent reel that was done on Instagram and was shared on other social media posts. The lady's name is Krista Elisha. She is known as a prophet, and I would would classify her in the NAR movement, uh, most definitely. She relies on a lot of visions and dreams and extra-biblical revelation. I was recently sent this clip, and I had actually seen it. When I was looking just through the Instagram search engine, it came out right around St. Patrick's Day, and you heard her reference St. Patrick. And I was really shocked when I saw this video because of what she was saying. I was concerned about what was being taught, and it led me to look into more of this teaching and to see where it was coming from, trying to find the origin of it. And ultimately, I can't necessarily find the origin of it in man, but I can definitely tell you where it's coming from, I do believe, based on scripture. I want to talk today about the fourth member of the Trinity. And you're going to obviously understand that this is kind of an oxymoronic statement to make, really, the fourth member of the Trinity, because the very definition of Trinity means that there's three in the Trinity. So, that can't make sense, but we're going to talk about it because this is what she's alluding to is the fourth member of the Trinity. This may not seem like a big deal to talk about and may seem like it should be a very simple five minute podcast of saying, well, there's the Trinity, there's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and that's it. We don't need to talk about it anymore. But if this type of belief is bleeding into and has been bleeding into the charismatic movement, or slash hyper-charismatic NAR, this is dangerous. And I want to also give examples of where we can see this type of teaching perpetuated elsewhere that is outside Orthodox Christianity, because this is not Orthodox Christianity, by the way. This is not a belief that is held in the creeds and such as you start to look at them, and even in Scripture itself. That is the ultimate authority that we go to is Scripture. So we're going to talk about the definition of the Trinity, where the belief of the Trinity came from, and we're going to talk about just a little bit on these uh, these articles or a few articles that I found. So when you see this reel on Instagram, and you can also probably find it on Facebook and YouTube, when Krista does this, she has in the lower left-hand corner of this reel, John 17, 21 typed up and also references, when you look at it, it's from the Passion Translation. I'm going to get to that in just a little bit through this podcast, but I want to again touch on, we're going to look at a few examples of where this type of belief system is 
perpetuated. And then we're also going to look at a lot of scripture. We're going to delve into that and we're look at what the Trinity is and help you and I both to understand why we believe in the Trinity as Orthodox Christians, what scripture has to say about it and where this belief came from to solidify the belief of the Trinity, because the Bible is the ultimate source that we go to. As I was thinking about what Krista said and to hear her use the four-leaf clover and the that this was the revelation given to St. Patrick by God, this is all extra biblical revelation. And this is, we need to test this. Anytime anyone claims that God is speaking to them outside of scripture, this must be tested regardless of what anyone thinks, what regardless of who it is, if it's your favorite person, whatever it, the case may be. When anybody claims that they're getting extra biblical revelation outside the word of God, this needs to be tested, let alone the fact of someone, if someone is professing to be a Christian, it is to be tested. We are to examine the fruit of someone's life. We are to examine what they're teaching, what they're proclaiming. We are to test it against scripture and to see if it bears witness with it. I would argue that this statement that she made does not bear witness with what scripture says. In fact, it is a dangerous statement as I've already made. And I'm going to explain that in this podcast. So buckle in. I hope that you'll enjoy this podcast, that you'll be encouraged by it to search the scriptures and to test all things. And obviously to pray for Krista, because I do believe that she is, um, that she is believing things and perpetuating things that are not biblical. And so we need to be praying for her and praying for people that are listening to her and make sure that people are following the truth, that they're following Christ. They're following Christ. Now, a few of the, when you look on the search engines, a few of the topics or a few of the articles that I found, you won't find a a gaggle (laughs) of these articles or these these references to the fourth person of the Trinity, but you will find them. For instance, I have three different ones here just to share with you today. The first one, the title of it was from 2016. The article is called The Fourth Person of the Trinity. This one is done by Richard Rohr. Now, Richard Rohr is a Franciscan monk. I'm going to refer to another article here in just a moment written by Marcia Montenegro, who used to be in the New Age she did an article addressing uh, some of this topic, and I had actually came across Richard's article before I came across Marsha's, and lo and behold, Marsha's article linked to this very article called The Fourth Person of the Trinity. But I want to read a few statements through this article that Richard Rohr wrote about the fourth person of the Trinity. Now, Richard Rohr has written a book several years ago. It's called The Universal Christ. Um, I noticed that some of the things that he has stated, he believes in panantheism. I'm going to play a video clip here in just a minute with him doing an interview with Oprah Winfrey about this very topic, panentheism, so you'll know what that means. But he talks about the fourth person of the Trinity in this article. And he says, most start with the one and then have trouble making it into the flow between the three. So he's talking about the Trinitarian belief that The Trinitarian revelation begins with the loving, and this is the true definition of being. So again, you're going to hear some references in just a moment, and even in through this article, it's sprinkled throughout, of his belief of panentheism, which is that God is in everything. There's pantheism, which is God is everything. And then there's panentheism, which is God is in everything. He's in the grass, he's in the trees, he's in the animals, he's in the the planet. God is, you know, Jesus is not just coming back to um, redeem people, but he's coming back to redeem everything because God is, and, and they don't mean that in the biblical sense of what we understand in Orthodox Christianity, the new heavens, new earth and such, because of 
the fall of man and sin and rebellion. They do not talk about that. They they address it as alienation um, uh, from from God, and that Jesus incarnates everything, so that that God is in everything. It kind of reminded me of when I did a podcast quite a while back about inner healing and about the pioneer of inner healing, who's that is Agnes Sanford, by the way. And I encourage you if you if you want to listen to something about inner healing and more about where that came from, you can search for that that podcast about inner healing, because I don't think a lot of people realize the origin of inner healing and where it came from. It came from Agnes Sanford. And Agnes Sanford's history and the things that she wrote about in her books are very disturbing. And she uh, talked about in one of her books, I think it was um, The Healing Light. She talks at one point about being outside and she encounters a snake and she was able to uh, understand and, and to see see God in the snake and to become one with the snake really is what she's she uses this these this verbiage that is not Christian um, and I, that sounds silly to say that but the way that she talks uh, it, it really has a, a new age sound to it a metaphysical uh, she she talks about at one Richard Rohr talks about the same thing they don't talk about the atonement she didn't understand the the point of uh, Calvary so yes Richard Rohr shares some of the similar verbiage that I noticed with Agnes Sanford and he talks in here about that in this article he says that some mystics who were on deep journeys of prayer took this message to its consistent conclusion creation must then be seen as the quote fourth person of the blessed trinity once more the divine dance isn't a closed circle we're all invited in he goes on to quote an independent scholar teacher uh c baxter kruger and this is one of the statements that Kruger said. It says, The stunning truth is that this triune God in amazing and lavish love determined to open the circle and share the Trinitarian life with others. That just gives us a little uh, understanding. I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on some of these other articles. I want to share them with you and I will have links to them so that way you can check them out for yourself and look at them just for resources only, not for actually understanding what the true Trinity is because we're going to spend a lot more time in scripture, but I do want to let you know and make you aware of these things being out there. The next article I came across, or it was actually on a blog. It was called The Fourth Member of the Trinity. This was written by a lady that titled herself, deemed herself a spiritual ecclesiologist. And she said the Trinity is Father, meaning to come forth out of God, the source of life, His Son, Yeshua, HaMashiach, and His Spirit, the whole Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit. She says, but who is the fourth member of the Trinity? You and I, in multiple exclamation points. And she goes on to quote different scriptures in here, and she talks about 1 Corinthians 13, 10, when the perfect comes, the imperfect passes away. She says, now is the time to believe the simple truth about the great gift of God that came to this earth in a physical form over 2,000 years ago. The perfect has already come. The end was from the beginning, but you have to believe it to receive it. You can't know it unless you try it out, test it out in your own body, and prove it to yourself by receiving it it into your physical body, mind, heart, soul, and spirit. She says, if you receive the perfection of God, the Holy Spirit, into your body temple, the imperfect must must pass away. The imperfect is substituted by the sacrificial lamb of God with the perfection of God. When the perfect comes, the imperfect passes away. The light shines in your body and the darkness is instantly gone, just like when you turn a light on in a dark room. But you must let go of your hold on the imperfect completely and receive the perfect of God. 
She says, in alchemy, I came across a statement, not three, not four. I have pondered this often. It became clear this morning after another night vigil with the presence of God that like the Trinity is three persons of the Godhead and we make four, the Godhead is also not three and not four. The Godhead is both Trinity and one, yet neither are completely true. The Godhead is one source of all, invisible, unmanifest presence, yet contains all the visible manifest presence in physical form. It is not just Father, Son, uh, which she says, Father is invisible presence. Son, she says, is visible presence of invisible presence. And Holy Spirit, breath, wind, fire, water, glory, dove, searches the depths of us and the depths of God and so much more. The one source of God is beyond any concept, idea, word, or theology about God. Now, I don't know if you could follow the logic there. I had a hard time following that when she talks about that the Godhead is both Trinity and one, yet neither are completely true. It seems like she kind of negates what she's saying. And she did talk about on in her about section, her bio, she talks about with being a spiritual ecclesiologist that she focuses on the contemplative part. So it sounds like she dabbles into the, the mystic part of it, which um, I would also classify Richard Rohr as a, a mystic as well. And you get into this, again, extra biblical revelation. And if you start pulling scriptures in, it sounds great when you're pulling scriptures in. But if you're not using the proper context of what the scriptures mean, and then you're saying such things as we are the fourth person of the Trinity, where is she getting her information aside from extra biblical revelation? It, it seems like that there's another influence coming in here that maybe she's read or something. I don't know. Now, before we get to the third one, I did want to play that video clip that I told you about Richard Rohr. And I want you to hear him talk about panentheism. So let's listen to that for just a moment. The height of Christian seeing is to see God in everything. To understand if God created all things, yes. there's one God who created all things, yes. then everything has to carry the divine DNA. Everything our eyes have ever seen is created in the image and likeness of God. And that God carries forth the God self into those beautiful blades of grass. Huh? In all of creation, there is a unifying heartbeat. One word for it is Christ. One word for it is Christ. One word for it is Christ. Anointing became an image for recognizing the spiritual presence in material things. They will think it's pantheism. I don't know if you've heard that word before. means God and all things are equal. We're not pantheists. Authentic Christianity is panentheism. God in all things. Mm -hmm. Not God is all things. Yes, very different. It's very different, and it's subtle. God is infused above, around, in, and throughout everything. Perfect. To be a Christian is to see Christ in every thing. In every thing. In every thing. At the end of that clip, they show the book titled The Universal Christ. That is not a book I would recommend to you as far as understanding Christianity better, but you could hear the usage of the word panentheism that I mentioned a few minutes ago in the article that Richard Rohr wrote. Now, you may be wondering, what is the issue here? That he mentioned the name of Jesus. He's talking about God creating the earth. But there's a there's a and he he's he's right in saying that it is a subtle change because it's not taught in Scripture. This is this is basically making God more like man. 
And this is essentially making man more like God, really, is what it's doing. It's doing the exact opposite of what Scripture should be doing. We know that God is present everywhere. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 8 tell us this. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. But God is not everything. And that's the difference. And again, that was the, the issue with Agnes Sanford. She's, uh, I talked about a minute ago. She was saying that she recognized God in that snake. And then and I, I, if I remember right, I remember talking about the blades of grass and such, but she focused on the, the snake and talking about how she was able to become one with that snake. That This is not the way that a Christian understands as far as creation goes. God knows everything. He, he does not learn because he already has all knowledge. He is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. So God is affected by things that occur in the universe, but only in that, that sin angers him and holiness pleases him. So we understand the attributes of God. And we also understand that our actions do not change God or impact his essential being. God is who he is, and nothing we do is going to change who God is. The Bible presents God as being holy. He's sovereign. God transcends all of his creation and is in no sense limited or changed by events in his creation. That just helps us to get a little bit of understanding of panentheism. And, you know, we, we see in Romans 1 that a person can see creation and and understand that there is a God, not because they're looking at creation and saying, oh, I see that God is in the blade of grass or he's in the trees or he's in that snake or in that dog or in that, um, you know, leaf or in the wind. That's not what that's saying. It's talking about the very fact that creation was made. It, it is sustained by God. It is held together by Christ. And we can see that in Romans 1 and Paul's point in Romans 1 in saying that is that even the atheist has no excuse. They can look around and see the complexity of creation itself and say, God exists. There is no reason to, there's no excuse. They are left without excuse is what Romans says. They're left without excuse in saying such a thing. Anyone who would deny the creator and instead wants to worship the created being, whether themselves or some other object or idol and such that they've fashioned out of their hands. The point of Romans 1 is to not say, well, God is in all of creation. No, rather it's to say you have no excuse. When you look at creation, you see there is a creator. There is God. He is. He has existed forever. He has always been. He has always will be. He's not created. And God is not in everything, but he created everything. And so this is pointing back to who God is. And again, I would argue that panentheism is creating man to be more like God. So when we say, well, God is in everything, then we're trying to deify everything, essentially. Now, I wanted to talk about this article I found from Marsha Montenegro. She wrote it on September 4th, 2019. She has a website and a Facebook page called Christian Answers for the New Age. She talked about, is the Trinity a dance, which is something that Kruger and Rohr and some others had actually mentioned in their writings. And some of the things that they believe, she addressed these things. I won't go through this whole thing just for time's sake. But she talked about some of the red flags and the the wording that they use. They talked again about alienation of people from God. They don't talk about sin. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in sin. They don't believe in the atonement in the way that the Orthodox Christianity teaches from scripture. They believe that you can attain a unity with God 
through atonement and through other different types of uh, beliefs and practices. They promote this, the belief of panentheism, is, and she references the panentheism that the the view that Jesus is sharing being and life and all things with God and that Jesus is a union between the Trinity, humanity and creation and that they believe in alienation, that he died to cleanse us of our alienation. That's what they believe. That's not what I'm saying that we believe as Christians, but they, the Kruger actually made a statement. He died to cleanse us of our alienation. And this does not, and in her words, she says, this does not clearly indicate that it is sin that causes this, the alienation, and that Jesus came to take on the penalty for sin so that all who believe in him can have eternal life. Avoiding the word sin, she says, and using another word like alienation, that's a vague term, and I agree with her, that takes out a big chunk of the gospel, is what she's saying. And so she talks about some of these issues in this article. I'll post that. That will be a good source for you to go to. The last article I wanted to share before we dive headfirst into Scripture and look at what the what the definition of the Trinity is and where that came from in Scripture, and to also address briefly the verse that Krista used in her Instagram reel of John seventeen twenty one and the Passion Translation. So we've got several things to look at. But this last article here I wanted to touch on just to give you another idea of another group that is using this with the fourth person of the Trinity. I found this article on the Latter-day Saint website, uh, Latter-day Saint website, and the article was written in 2018. It says, The name of Heavenly Mother and Father, insights that might change how you read the scriptures. And they talk about that uh, many Latter-day Saints know the Hebrew word Elohim is used frequently in the Bible to reference God. But they say, Did you know this sacred title was also used to reference the pagan gods and spirits worshipped during biblical times? Times. And they go on to talk about Elohim being a plural word, allowing it to be inclusive of multiple beings like the Father and the Son and or the Godhead in general. They pose the question, but could the use of Elohim as a plural noun include female deity and reference our Heavenly Mother? They never actually come out and use the word fourth member of the Trinity, but when I type this in the Google search engine, this is one of the articles that came up for this. At the end of this article, it says, everything we learn and do should shape our natures to become more like those of our heavenly parents. And the only way we can truly become gods and goddesses, because this is what Mormons believe or Latter-day Saints believe is that we can become gods, is through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only showed the way, but made it possible for us to receive eternal life and exaltation. And the last thing that they quote is from one of their 12 apostles, um, from the Oaks of the Quorum of the 12 apostles, who said, our theology begins with heavenly parents. Our highest aspiration is to be like them. That was an article from the Latter-day Saints talking about, seems like they're alluding to the heavenly mother being the fourth member of the Trinity. Now that we've looked at that a little bit and given you some uh, a few examples of this use, which again, I would argue is it's not biblical to use this. It's it's quite dangerous to use this. I want to address real quick the passage that Krista used. She quoted John 17, 21 in the lower left-hand corner of her Instagram reel. When I looked that up, just as a minor point, that was actually a misquote um, on her part, and that happens to all of us. So uh, I've done that before. I know you have probably done that before, but I wanted to uh, bring some clarity to that. So when you looked that up, I was looking at the words, the verbiage of it that, that was 
typed up and I thought, that sounds like the Passion Translation. And it sounds like it because it is. And I used to read the Passion Translation and I no longer read it anymore and I don't recommend it to read. Maybe I'll do a podcast on that sometime. But honestly, there's so many other good resources out there that are far more thorough than I could ever be. Mike Winger has some really excellent YouTube videos on this. I encourage you to go check that out. But I do not recommend that you read the Passion Translation. So John 17, 23 in the Passion Translation, this is one of the few times that you will ever hear me read the Passion Translation on this podcast, but it says this, it's not 17, 21 that she quoted, it's verse 23. It says, you live fully in me and now I live fully in them. This is Jesus talking, by the way, in the high priestly prayer, so that they will experience perfect unity. And it goes on, she didn't quote the rest probably for for, uh, room's sake, but it says, And the world will be convinced that you have sent me, for they will see that you love each one of them with the same passionate love that you have for me. That, again, that's the Passion Translation. Uh, One source that we would use, an actual translation that we could use. Uh, You can certainly use King James. There's some people that prefer to use King James, and that's totally fine. I prefer to go to ESV, so I'm going to go to ESV. It's known as a word-for-word translation, but in John 17, 23, it says, well, let's back up to verse 20. I like to read things in context. Verse 20 in John 17 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now he's talking about the, the 12 apostles that he has commissioned. We know one of them was Judas. According to scripture, he betrayed Jesus. He was purpose to do that. And so we see that he's talking, he's praying for his disciples, his apostles, and he also, this is praying for us, for those that will hear their words through scripture, right? So verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So when we read John 17, the context, when you read the high priestly prayer, Jesus is talking, when it's talk, he's talking about his disciples and us, he's talking about being unified and in unity in him, not becoming God's but in unity in the truth of his word. He even prays before this in John 17, 17, sanctify them. He's talking about his disciples slash apostles. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We go back to the truth of the word of God that anchors us in being unified in that. We are to be unified in the truth of the word of God. Not an extra biblical revelation, not in in someone uh, saying that God said this outside of the word of God and it, it disagrees with scripture because the fourth member of the Trinity disagrees with scripture. For one thing, as I said before, it's an oxymoron. Trinity means three. That tri means three. So to say that we're the fourth member of the Trinity is incoherent. <laughs> okay, it is incoherent to say such a thing. That doesn't even fit with the definition of the word. You can't make up, contrary to what people believe today in, in, in our society, you can't make up your own definitions to words and have them mean what you want them to mean. Trinity does not mean four. And it also is not some vagary that someone else states of saying, well, it's not three and it's not four because of alchemy. That makes no sense. You, you can't make such vague comments and try to sound profound because it just comes off as illogical. And it's not according to what... The Bible tells us we are not the fourth member of the Trinity, because if we were, 
then that would mean that we are co-eternal, that we are co-equal to God. It would mean that we have pre-existed, would it not? We haven't pre-existed. I mean, that's one of the things that some of the people believe in some of these, especially with the LDS community. I don't know what Richard Ward believes about this, but there are some people that believe we pre-existed. That is to put us on par with God. We did not pre-exist. We have not existed for all time. And it is dangerous because this leads to the the thinking that's in league with the serpent in the garden. You know, did God really say that? Is that what he really meant by that? You know, the, it questions what scripture has to say about the Trinity. And it puts us on par with God. We are not on par with God. And scripture over and over again, it helps us to understand that. Even if you read the book of Job and you see how Job and his friends are dialoguing back and forth and even the things that Job says. And then God comes at the end of Job and he corrects Job and, and asks him, you know, where were you when all these things were created? When I created the seas and all of this was done, where were you? He reminds Job of who is God and who is the created being here. And we need to be reminded of that. And I'm, I'm afraid what concerns me is that when people are believing and embracing this type of teaching, that we're the fourth member of the Trinity, we're embracing a Luciferian mindset of, I can be like God. And that's what Satan does. Satan believes, I can be like God. He talks about that. It's, it's mentioned in the Old Testament, is it not? Isaiah 14 talks about this. You know, he, that he wanted, I will ascend. I will do these things. I will put my throne. I, 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 I will do all this. God is the one, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. In essence, all are God, but one God, three persons. That's what we believe as the Trinity, as Orthodox Christianity. We are not the fourth member of the Trinity. And if someone is saying this, then these are some of the questions we need to be asking this person or asking in general, is this Orthodox Christian belief? Where is the individual getting this revelation? Where, other than outside uh, their, th- them saying God told them this, we need to be asking them, who are you reading? Who are you listening to? Where is this coming from? Because something else is influencing this along the way too. And scripture is the final authority. It is not personal revelation that's the final authority. Now, having said that, let's go into scripture since we've segued into it. When looking up about the origin of the doctrine of the Trinity, these are things that we need to understand as believers in Christ. The Trinity is a unique and uh, incomprehensible concept to try to understand as human beings. However, we do know that it is in Scripture. We do not see the word Trinity in the Bible, but we do see the Scriptures that are alluding to the Trinity that support that the Father is one distinct person, the Son is one distinct person, the Holy Spirit is one distinct person, yet they are one in essence, and they are co-eternal, co-equal, One is not the other. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God, but they are not. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. Some people will use the argument, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, the word Bible, I've heard people say this, so this is not my original thought, but the word Bible is not in the Bible. The, The word revival is not in the Bible. There are different words that we can point out and say, well, you know, that word's not there. In the case of the Trinity, we do see scripture that supports this belief, this understanding as Christians, that our God is different from the other false gods that other religions talk about, or the ones that are talked about in scripture, that that were polytheists, that were pagan, that worshiped many gods. We don't worship many gods. We worship one God, and he is one God, three persons. 
And this is the Orthodox Christian belief. We understand that the Trinity holds that God is one essence, but three persons. So God has one nature, but he has three separate persons displayed or demonstrated in the Godhead. For example, we can see that the first century Christians knew that the Son was the creator. And we can see that in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We can see the reference to I am, uh, the I am of the Old Testament. We know that Exodus 3.14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. We also know that in John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus is talking to the people and they're questioning him about different areas, and Jesus talks about Abraham, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. We know immediately following that passage in in John 8 that the people picked up stones to kill him because they understood that Jesus was saying he was God. There are people that say, well, Jesus never said he was God. This is a particular example that we can see specifically where Jesus is alluding to referencing that he is God. So he's equal to the father. We see this in John chapter 14, verse nine. It said, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? We know that Jesus is going to judge all the earth. We see this in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, and we also see it in John chapter 5, verse 22. And he is to be worshipped as only God is the only one that is permitted to be worshipped. And we see this in Deuteronomy 6, that, that God tells the people, it is the Lord your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Uh, we see this in Luke 4, 8, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and he references this same passage of scripture in Deuteronomy, that you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And another wonderful example for us to see is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, where they were in the boat and the storm was coming with the disciples and Jesus were in the boat. The storm comes and Jesus rebukes the storm. The disciples there, Matthew, it's almost as if they, they see there that Jesus is who he says that he is for that. In that moment, they see that. Of course, we know the disciples were grappling with unbelief and they were trying to, you know, figure things out on their own understanding. And it wasn't until after Jesus was resurrected that they begin to understand more clearly what Jesus was talking about and that he was the true Messiah. But in this passage in Matthew 14, 33, it says, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. God is the only one allowed to be worshiped. So the fact that this is another beautiful example of the fact that Jesus is the son of God. He was truly God, truly man. He was the, he, God is the only one allowed to be worshiped. And Jesus was permitting the disciples to worship him. If he was not God, he would not have allowed that. Even as a Jewish man, understanding the law, the, the Mosaic law, he would not have allowed them to do that. But he is God. And so this is a beautiful example for us to see that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God and he is worthy of worship and praise. If we look through scripture, we can see numerous times where the mentioning of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in the Bible. We can see that, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, or we can see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And we also understand that the Holy Spirit is another counselor, that he is to come to live in our hearts. John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17 says, And I will ask the fathers, this is Jesus speaking, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. We know that the, that the Trinity is present throughout Scripture. We can see this. We can even see this in the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Genesis. When creation is taking place, God is saying, let us make man in our image. The word used there is in the plural for God. And so we know that he was alone when he created everything, stretching out the heavens and spreading out the earth by himself, according to Isaiah forty-four twenty-four. However, Jesus was the instrument of God's creation. And Colossians 1.16 is, is one of the examples we can see in this. As I've, I've read this passage multiple times. It's just a, a fascinating to me as I read this when we see Christ in here. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And that's referring to Jesus Christ. And he was in the company of the Holy Spirit, who was hovering over the, the, the face of the deep, is what we see in Genesis. The only real explanation of the understanding of this is the understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we can even see the, the example of the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus Christ. We see the heavens open up, that the dove descends like a Holy Spirit upon Christ, and we hear the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's a prime example of the Trinity in full view in Scripture in the New Testament. And so there are a lot of different Scriptures that we can go to to understand this. Now you may be asking, okay, so we see that Scripture has laid this out. We don't see the actual term Trinity in the Bible. So where did this formulate? So Tertullian was a church father. He existed from 160 to 225 AD, and he was the first to apply the term Trinity as far as talking about God. And then after Tertullian, we can see in 325 AD that there was a debate, uh, the Council of Nicaea, and that's when the Nicene Creed was created. And this is where the Trinity was confirmed as an official church doctrine. And just to have a working definition of what the Trinity is, even in a regular dictionary, we can see that the word Trinity is the Christian Godhead as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we see that this is the Trinity, we can see that there is no room for a fourth in the Trinity. That should give us more clarity on the mentioning of that and the teaching of there is now a fourth in the Trinity, which is us. And that is, again, I've expressed my concerns about that. And so I would encourage you to do your own Bible study on the Trinity, to go through and look at the scriptures, to uh, utilize resources available to you, commentaries and Bible dictionaries, and find good websites. I've mentioned gotquestions.org. Again, those are good websites that you can go to to look at. That's a good website you can go to, to to type in some of your questions and see if that helps steer you in a direction of even further Bible study and helping you to understand better and maybe even to illuminate the scripture to you to help so that way you you're solidified in what you believe and understanding the scripture in context the last thing I wanted to cover here was this uh, again when we were talking about what Krista said and then other people that have referenced as far as being in Christ and panentheism and gods and everything and that uh, that Christ is in us but they don't mean it the it, it may sound the same way biblically but when you start really fleshing that out and teasing that out of what they mean, it doesn't mean the same thing. So what does scripture mean when it says that we are in Christ? Well, let's take a look at Galatians 3, 26 through 28. This passage of scripture says, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so to be in Christ, we are all children of God through faith. When we're believers in Christ, it doesn't mean all of us as a universal Christ. This means those that have um, repented of their sin and they have confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead, then they shall be saved. Professing believers in Christ, the ones that have truly placed their faith in Christ to save them from their sins, save them from the wrath of God, and to give them the promise of eternal life by Christ alone, we are considered children of God through faith. And we have been baptized into Christ and have been clothed in Christ with his righteousness. This is good news. This is this is good news, and it brings us joy when we understand this. We have a new identity because of our faith in Christ. We are no longer the old creation. The old, the old man has passed away. The new has come. And to be baptized into Christ means that we are identified with Christ, having left behind the sinful, the, the sinful life that we once had and the uh, rags of unrighteousness that we were in and the, the, the rebellion that we were walking in against God, and that we are, have a new life in Christ. This is, helps us to understand what it means to be in Christ. It it's, doesn't mean we become a, a, a divine being. It doesn't mean that we become God. It doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't, it's not a panentheistic worldview as what Richard Rohr says in his interview with Oprah. So 1 Corinthians also too, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Being in Christ, we can see numerous passages in Scripture that talk about this. For example, Colossians 3, 3 tells us, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I was looking this up on a website on gotquestions.org, and this is what it had to say. It says, God is perfect justice. He cannot simply overlook or excuse our sin. That would not be just. Sin had to be paid for. All the wrath God holds toward evil was poured out on his own son. When Jesus took our place on the cross, he suffered the punishment our sin deserves. His last words before he died were, it is finished. What was finished? Not merely his earthly life. As he proved three days later, that was not finished. What he finished on the cross was God's plan to redeem his fallen world. When Jesus said it is finished, he was stating that he had successfully paid in full for every act of rebellion, past, present, and future. To be in Christ means we have accepted his sacrifice as payment for our own sin. Our rap sheets contain every sinful thought, attitude, or action we have ever committed. No amount of self-cleansing can make us pure enough to warrant forgiveness and a relationship with a holy God. The Bible says that in our natural sinful state, we are enemies of God. When we accept his sacrifice on our behalf, he switches accounts with us. He exchanges our list of sins for his perfect account that is totally pleasing to God. A divine exchange takes place at the foot of the cross, our old sin nature for his perfect one. And to enter the presence of God, we must be hidden in the righteousness of Christ. To be in Christ means that God no longer sees our imperfections. He sees the righteousness of his own son. Only in Christ is our sin debt canceled, our relationship with God restored, and our eternity secured. This helps to give us an overview of the Trinity. There are theologians that have done a far more in-depth, far greater study that, that can help us in our understanding as we search the scriptures and make sure that we have a proper understanding. And I hope that you hear in this podcast, whenever there's a, 
a concern of something that's being presented to people, whether it is in a one minute Instagram reel or, or whatever it is, I hope that you hear the concern, the great concern, not only for those that are listening, but also for the, the person that's saying this and realizing that this is, uh, this is made public for one thing. It's a public thing that's being um, taught to people. It's being perpetuated. Thousands of people, sometimes even hundreds of thousands of people love things like this. They, they watch it. They comment on it. They love it. They say they love to glean from it. But the question is, the concern is, is this really what Scripture teaches? And the Scripture doesn't teach us that we're the fourth member of the Trinity. And again, the points I'm going to say again are that to imply that we are the fourth member of the Trinity, it goes against the definition of the word, but it's making us equal with God. And then it's making us like God in that capacity of divinity. And I don't think that that's probably what's being presented, what's meant to be present, presented there, but that is what it's doing. And, and it, it helps us to see that there's um, unfortunately a misunderstanding of the Trinity this needs to be addressed so that way people have a proper understanding and we're reverencing God the way we should. So I hope that this has been helpful. Um, and please, I encourage you to continue to, to dig through the scriptures and search the scriptures. Listen to good biblical sound teaching that you can trust that is going to lead you in the right direction in scripture and lead you into all truth because the word of God is not going to contradict someone's extra biblical revelation if that if it them saying it was truly from God anything that contradicts the word of God is to be rejected it is not to be counted as truth and we should be willing to be truthful and say that because we love people enough to, to tell the truth. So I hope, again, I hope that this has encouraged you. This has been helpful. And may we glorify God in all that we do. And let's do that by beginning with reading the Word of God in context and making sure that who we're listening to and what we're listening to matches up to Scripture. That is the final authority for us as, as believers in Christ. And that we are glorifying God in spirit and truth. Be blessed today by this word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the word and loving the one who is the word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.